we'll all spend our lives, especially in the part of the church, trying to answer some of these difficult questions. But there are questions that we have that biblical scholars and people who study uh, spend their lifetimes trying to figure out. And really, they don't come to some satisfying conclusions. They still have questions that they raise that we can't be for sure. And I know some of you feel the same way because you've talked to me about it and talked to others on the staff, but that's why we have sermons and lessons and Bible studies and all the things that we do here, all the things that we do here to try to help us understand about God and the Bible and Jesus, how he wants us to live, all the questions that comes from living in the household of faith. Someone uh, once expressed frustration that they really couldn't understand God. I couldn't understand the Bible and his ways. And one well-meaning friend said, well, it's all right there in the Bible. All you have to do is just study harder. Well, I'm not so sure that's a complete answer. Sometimes with all of our conversation, activity, study, and learning, we come to this point. I guess we might have to just take this one on faith. And that's really a part of the Christian walk. The older I get, the more questions I have and the fewer answers I have. The more I know that I don't know. Two early church theologians said this, if you understand, it is not God that you understand. And this one, this is the ultimate knowledge about God, to know that we do not know. If you can explain everything about God and His ways, how big is God anyway? Is He just something of your own making? Faith deals with things we cannot see and we cannot understand. And that's a big part of the Christian life. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So in our effort to know everything, we sometimes take a simple truth and we complicate it. Now, how does that relate to our study of 1 Thessalonians? That's where we are in our study of the Bible this week, the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica, which is a city, a very prosperous, large, growing city that, that Paul and his traveling companions established a church. It's on a trade route, a lots of, uh, it was a cosmopolitan place. Things were happening there. They established the church, but there was a lot of opposition. And because of the opposition and persecution, Paul and his companions were forced to leave. They were forced to flee because they feared for their safety. Paul was still concerned about what was happening back at this church. So he sent his friend and ministry worker Timothy back at, at a later point and asked Timothy to find out what was going on at this church. So Timothy reports back to Paul, and this letter, which is probably one of the earliest letters written to the church, uh, between about 49 and 51 A.D., a very early glimpse into the thinking of the early church and to the thinking and, and the ideas of Paul, this very early letter, Paul tries to address their questions. One of their questions was this, if the Lord's return is near, what's going to happen to those people who have already died? That was their question. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul attempts to answer this complicated question. Let me read it for you. 
Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. But you are in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and night, so be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. A couple of years ago, we were in uh, New York City. On that May Saturday, when the preacher from out in that part of the country predicted that the world was going to come to an end. I don't know if you remember that. It was about sometime in 2012. He first predicted it earlier, and he said, oh, I'm wrong on that. It's going to be later. So we happened to be there. We were in Times Square on the day right before the time he said the world would end. We were going to a Broadway show. We weren't really worried about it, but there were people who were worried because there were people standing on the corner with signs and passing out pamphlets talking about the end of the world. There were some other establishments that had end of the world parties in their window. They weren't too concerned, but the point was this man said the world will end, and there were people who were really, really concerned about that. They were very worried. The time came for the end of the world nothing happened. Those people who had been standing on the corners past, they suddenly disappeared. Now, somebody could say, well, they, they've, they've been taken and you've been left behind, but I don't think so. I think it didn't happen, and they are gone. You see, Jesus said this, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Some people worry so much about these details they try to figure out what both Jesus and Paul says is going to be unexpected, unknowable. And they miss a bigger point. Thomas Aquinas said, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. God destines us for an end beyond the grasp of our reason. We just have to take that on faith. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. This one's for you, Don. A preacher had a, uh, decided to do an object lesson. He had four jars. First jar, he had a alcohol in it. He dropped a live worm in it. Second jar had cigarette smoke. Dropped a worm in it. Third jar, chocolate syrup. Fourth jar, good, rich soil. Went on to preach his sermon. At the end of the sermon, he said, let's see what happened. First jar, dead worm. Second jar, smoked dead worm. Third jar, chocolatey dead worm. Fourth jar, a living worm. And so he's rather proud and says, okay, what have we learned from this demonstration? 
Someone in the back said this, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. <laughs> it's really easy to misunderstand what people say or what their intentions are. So I, I tell you that so that you will not misunderstand what I'm saying right now. The fact that Jesus will return is very important. The fact of you worrying about what that's all about, the when and the what and all of the details are absolutely unknowable. That You can speculate, you can write books about it, you can make movies about it, but Jesus says nobody really exactly knows. Now Paul is going to talk more about the return of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to leave that to Tom next week. But right here, Paul tells them, don't worry so much about when or what will happen. Understand that it will happen. Be sober, be awake, be ready, be prepared. And so he spends some of the time in this fifth chapter then telling this early young church how to be prepared. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, starting in chapter 5, verse 12. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit, do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said, hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. Paul gives here some practical advice, a lot of just all kinds of things all thrown out at once on how this early church is to live as they live in the light of the Lord's return at some unexpected time, how they are to be ready. So I've grouped them into four sections. Respect your leaders is the first one. Respect your leaders. Leadership is really hard work. People are always after you because of your decisions. They're critical. You never know who's going to stab you in the back. And in this day and time, people are always trying to dig up dirt on a leader so they can use it against them, so they can leverage power. Who would want to be a leader in a culture like this? The culture of Paul's time was not much different. In fact, a lot of the leaders of groups there uh, got their leadership because of family, power, and money. And they really weren't very much worth following. But Paul says the, the leaders of the family of God, the leaders that he probably knew personally from this church, these people are worth following. Honor them. Don't be like everybody who is constantly criticizing and second-guessing leaders. Don't do that for the church's leaders. The thing that tears a church apart quickly is when people start sniping and grumbling and complaining about decisions and leadership, not trusting the leaders. And he says, because they work hard among you. They're not doing this for status or power. They're doing this to serve you. They're doing this out of love. They're caring for your soul. So honor their work. That's hard to do in any culture. Extremely hard to do. I say in Indiana, 
everyone knows how to preach at a church and coach basketball. Everybody's got an opinion about church and what's wrong and what's right. Try it once. It's not as easy as it seems. Everybody's got an idea about basketball. We're all experts. Put yourself into those situations and see how good you would do. Paul is saying, honor those people who have enough courage to be leaders. Respect them. That's the way we prepare ourselves for the Lord's return. Secondly, he says, this is a broad term, be good. Be good. One of the things he says is live peacefully. That is, church, you're not troublemakers. You're not troublemakers within the church. You're not seen as troublemakers outside the church. You are people who live at peace with others. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, he says this, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. That great 20th century theologian, Will Rogers, said it this way, live so that you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. Your life is to be a reflection of a changed life. Live peaceably. He also says, warn those among you who are idle. You see, there was a misconception that since Jesus is going to return soon, we should just not work anymore because there's no need to work. And these people were becoming a burden on everybody else who was working. And so Paul says, stand alongside these brothers and sisters and say, get to work. No one knows the day and the hour of the Lord's return, so get to work. Part of the job as the family of God here is for us to look out for one another, to warn each other, to instruct each other about dangers that we might face. It's also hard for us in this culture to do that because what do we say when someone has a suggestion for us? That's none of your business. Stay out of my business. But in the church... We are to gently stand beside brothers and sisters and say, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't do that. I want to warn you gently. Paul says, restore those who have fallen away or gone away gently. You don't use a hammer. You're gentle. But that's part of our responsibility. And part of your responsibility as a church is to lean on those who are farther along with, uh, than you in the faith to get advice and counsel from them. Now, as I tell folks, I maybe can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you a lot about what not to do. And sometimes that's just as much good advice as what to do. Respect those who have godly wisdom. We'll learn a little bit more about that in a minute. He says, be encouraging. Be positive. Accentuate this positive. See the best in one another. Don't always be hypercritical. Be patient with everybody. Don't be easily frustrated. And our world is a world that is easily frustrated. We want things our way on time. I think I've said this to you before, but I've been in a, in a, a fast food place where a, a person got pickles on his sandwich and he just exploded. I mean, he was just mad as a hornet because he got pickles on his sandwich. Now that is a first world problem. <laughs> Nobody else cares. Don't be the kind of person who is completely impatient and frustrated with everything around you. Be the kind of person, Paul says, that is patient with who? Everyone. And then he says, to sum it up, this is what it means to be good. Be good to everyone, not just the people in the church, but to everyone. Because doing good is a characteristic of Jesus. 
Now, back in 2012, at the end of uh, uh, the year, uh, I usually, I drew the straw to preach the sermon because everybody was out on Christmas break and there was like 12 of us here. And I preached the sermon and, and the application of the sermon was, what if everyone here at church would do, uh, proactively do an act of kindness every day? Does anybody remember that? Crickets. One, two. That beats last service. One. I, but here's the thing. I didn't even do it, you know. I made the suggestion and then I lost track of it. One person that I know took that challenge. And here's her story. My name is Faith Campbell. I've been going to Sherwood Oaks since uh, the late 90s. Um, and at the end of 2012, Roger Clark did a sermon, and during that sermon, he was wanting to challenge everybody to do an act of kindness every day. And during that sermon, I was, at, I was up for the challenge. So starting in January 1st of 2013, I did that for 365 days. Absolutely loved it. Um, some of the things I did is I went to, I would bring the Sherwood Oak staff breakfast. Um, I would go through drive throughs like at Starbucks for their order. Um, there was one time I went to Burger King. I went back like two or three weeks later. The cashier remembered me. She told me that the five cars behind me did the same thing. I'm like, oh my gosh, there really are nice people out there. <laughs> um, and it, I love doing it. And the best part of it was people were really appreciative. When I would pay for the person in front of me, they would end up parking their car because I was still paying for mine. And they would walk up to my car and they would be so thankful. They're like, that has never happened to me before. So I touched people's lives, and I was glad that I was able to do that. Some of the acts of kindness I did during the year, um, I have a really good friend here at church, and I would bring her lunch during the day. I would bring her a new breakfast sandwich that she's never tried before. I would make her day by bringing her a flower, because she's such a dear friend to me. Um, I would go to a grocery store, let people in front of me at the, at the line. I even gave a cashier at the grocery store, like a donut or a piece of candy, because she's never tried it before. So, and she's like, that's never happened to me before. So there's a lot of people out there that don't have nice things given to them. I just enjoy doing it every day. And it was 365 days, and I kept a journal, and that journal would have like 100 days on it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got 100 days. I only have, what, 265 more days to go, but I did it. I was up for that challenge that Roger Clark gave me. And I was bound and determined to finish it, and I did. Well, Faith was here today, and, you know, she really doesn't want this to be about her, but it's just a story that, you know, she's an ordinary person that she, you can do this. It's not, and, you know, some people, well, that, that didn't sound like that was very hard. That's the point. I mean, you know, you don't have to give your kidney to somebody. I mean, if you can, it's a good thing to do, but it's not the big things that always make a difference. You, you don't wait for the big thing. Start doing the little things, the small acts of kindness and service to other people, but those little things make a big difference. Did you notice kindness is contagious? Did you notice that? Well, other people started doing it. Kindness is even contagious to people who are not Christians. Kindness is is the magnet that pulls people 
to Christians to say, why in the world would you do something like that? And gives you perhaps an opportunity to say, well, you know, I'm just sort of living as a Christian. I just think those are the kind of things I ought to do. It opens the door of opportunity. You know, uh, the Harvard Business Review last year did a survey uh, of, of rudeness at work. Well, they concluded there's a lot of rudeness at work, by the way. But here's their bottom line. Just one habitually offensive employee critically positioned in your organization can cost you dearly. Let me suggest to you that just one habitually offensive Christian critically positioned in your community can cost you dearly. You can ruin the reputation of your church. You can tarnish the reputation of Jesus by your actions in our community. Be careful. I suppose that's why Peter said this. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. The third thing he says here is pray. Now, we've talked a lot about prayer here. Prayer is a big mystery. Prayer, prayer is one of those unknowable things. Uh, we don't exactly know how it works. I do know that Jesus asked us to pray, and he prayed, so I think that's a good thing for us to do. But when we pray a lot of times, we spend more time with our lists than we do with listening. And a part of prayer is not just talking, but it's listening. It's allowing God to enter a quiet space in your life and perhaps he might impress upon you something that he desires of you. Most of us are afraid of silence, but I think we're even more afraid of the silence in which we might let God come in. Because what if he, what if he asks us to do something we don't want to do? Jesus spent a lot of time preparing for his ministry in solitude, in silence, sitting in the presence of God not just to tell him something, but to basically say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I like what Henry Nouwen says. God is doing something right now. The chipping away and sculpting is, our, is taking place whether we are aware of it or not. Our task is to recognize that indeed it is God who is acting and we are already involved in spiritual life. Whether you know it or not, God is acting in our lives here this morning. And in prayer, part of what happens is we are silenced and stopped long enough to start looking for God's presence in our everyday surroundings. There's a famous passage in Romans 8.28 that relates to this. Let me read it in a different translation, the voice message. Uh, we are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when we love Him and accept His invitation to live according to His plan. In prayer, we become connected and confident that God is working things together for our good. Lastly, Paul says, test everything. You see, in the believer, in the way the church service was conducted at the time, people would come in, one person had this word and one person had this word, how God was impressing upon them something. See, they didn't have much Bible to deal with that we do. And so Paul says, when these people get up to speak and talk about how God is working, don't just make fun of them. Don't quench or stifle the spirit, but test what they say. Keep everything that is good. Get rid of everything that seems evil to you. And you say, well, I wish, wish it was that easy. I just wish God would speak to me and I would know. How, 
It's so confusing. God has spoken to you today through his word. And although you cannot understand everything that, there, that might be in here, there's a lot that you can understand and use. And so testing involves hearing and then lining up what you hear with God's word. Is it in harmony with what God's word teaches? If it is, you can be certain that you could keep hold of it. Another way that you can test is by depending on godly friends, people who have walked the journey of faith longer than you and before you and question them. What do you think about this? Is this a God thing or is this a me thing? Now, I notice what most people do. They keep going around to somebody until they find somebody that will agree with them. They don't really want to hear advice. They want agreement. But if you really want to live in preparation for God's return, as Paul suggests here, you will go to godly leaders and godly people for wisdom and advice on how to live. And then do Listen. That's a part of what we do here. And the third thing that you can do to test is to ask your question, will this lead me closer to God or does this take me farther away? Would I invite Jesus with me into this activity or would I hope he didn't see me? Those are three good questions in order to test, to avoid the evil and cling to the good. So in the light of Lord's return, can we as a church be prepared? Absolutely. We can take this advice we can be prepared. We can respect our leaders. And in fact, the way you can best respect your leaders is to be great followers. Appreciate them and follow their lead. They care for your souls. Be proactive in doing good. You don't have to do something big. Start small, but just keep at it. Keep looking for ways as you go about your life to do good. Be a pastoral care department. Uh, I would say that many of you here sit in about the same place every week. But do you really know anybody around you? If they were missing, would you know even how to find out how they were? Do you know anything about their life? Or do you just walk in and walk out? Be a pastoral care department that says, the folks around me are my little flock, and I'm going to find out about them. If they're not here, I'm going I'm to find out. I'm going to Send cards. Visit people in the hospital. These are things we can do to express the love of Jesus to the family of God. Make your prayer times more about listening than asking. However, I would like for you to remember to pray this week for all of our students and everyone who's involved in the mission environments all over the world. We've got a Dominican Republic team. We've got a Guatemalan team. We've got a Honduras team. We've got someone in Kenya. We've got a group of interna- large group of international students down in the Smoky Mountains for a retreat. These people have separated themselves to study God's Word or do God's work. Pray for them. Pray for them. That's one thing you could specifically do this week. And finally, test everything you hear. Don't just believe what I say. Don't believe what anybody says. But begin to test it against your understanding and your study of God's Word with wise counsel. It takes every one of us here doing our part to make this the kind of church that Paul talks about. An old mentor that once said, when you point your finger at someone else, there are three fingers pointing back at you. So remember, you're not to take this and say, yeah, you know, this person needs to pray more, that person needs to follow their leaders more, this person needs to... No. What do you need to do to make this a better church, a better place that's prepared for God's return, a place that is accepting of new family members.
Now, some of you here are still kicking the tires a little bit. You're not sure about God, Jesus, the Bible. You've got lots of questions. And remember, questions are fine because as you grow in your faith, you still have questions. Not all of your questions will ever be sufficiently answered, but there is something you can do to step across that line of faith, and that is to do what many of us here have already done. That is to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and Savior, and that's my starting point. That's my starting point. Then according to the pattern of the New Testament church, you are baptized into Jesus and you begin to be adopted into our family. We begin to learn and grow together. I believe that Jesus loves you so much that he will give you what you want. And so if you have chosen to walk away from him, you've chosen to ignore him, he'll let you. He loves you so much he will give you a choice. And though it breaks his heart, when that time that Jesus says there will be a judgment, when that time comes, he will give you what you've chosen in this life. And he will say, sorry, I never knew you. I wanted to. I tried. But that was your choice. I'm giving you what you've asked for. But you have a choice. You can say, I want to walk with Jesus. I don't know what that means. It's kind of confusing. But I believe that there's something more than just death. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, the part I didn't read from chapter 5, he says this, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. You see, God is not willing that any should perish. Christ died for us that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Does that encourage you or does that scare you to death? Is the fact that it's possible that when you die, there's something else. And there is a judgment, like Jesus says. And we will all be held accountable for who we are and what we've become. If that frightens you, that's the line of faith you need to step across today. But Jesus will give you what you've chosen because he loves you that much. In John, we find these comforting words of Jesus. He says, I am going to prepare a place for you. How does that end? For that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is preparing for you. Are you prepared for him?